Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hey guys, this is the Between the Lines with Virtual Academy podcast, a place where we go beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response, a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. How are you doing? I am producer, co-host extraordinaire, Brent Henson, along with you today, and uh, we uh, welcome our main host for the episode, Mr. Mike Warren. How are you, sir? Buddy, I'm doing great. How are you today? Uh, you know, a little hot, but I guess that's to be expected. Well, well you know, it's a, actually a little warm here in Michigan, too, but uh, I have to tell you, I am super excited, super excited about our guest today, man. Yeah, and I'm interested in finding out more about him, and then also uh, we're going to touch on the topic of uh, officer wellness and mental health, and it's something we've touched on before in a previous episode, but I really want to like dig in deep and, and find out some, some information from him because I think it's an important topic. Absolutely. Uh, our guest today is someone I consider a friend, a mentor, and uh, one of the smartest dudes that I have ever met in, in this profession, Mr. Joe Willis. Welcome to the show, Mr. Willis. The pressure is on because I will tell you, uh, you know, the, the feeling is mutual, man. We've I don't even remember when and where we met or how it all happened. You just kind of seemed to be uh, part of part of the story for me. Uh, And so, uh, no, the utmost respect. And it's truly an honor to be here, man. Thank you so much for inviting me. Buddy, we, we, we couldn't be more excited about it. So so why don't we just jump into things here? And uh, uh, for those of you who don't know Joe Willis, uh, Joe is a retired uh, soldier. And so I'm going to start off and, and I want to know about the pre-military, the young Joe Willis. What can you tell me about that guy? Yeah, the young Joe Willis was... Uh... Uh, not the one that you would have expected to make it in the military for 20 years. I will tell you that much. <laughs> the, no, for real, man. I um, I was just talking to my kids about this. Like my uh, my education story is not the typical, right? Like I uh, eighth grade was pretty much where I I drew the line, and from that point forward, my education was over. Uh, I effectively dropped out in the ninth grade, um, and uh, went to work. And, you know, my my goal in life actually was to uh, to be a beach bum. Uh, I was a uh, <laughs> an ocean lifeguard at the time and uh, just had no desire whatsoever to uh, to do anything. And then all of a sudden uh, I learned that my, my first kid was on the way and realized that there had to be something more uh, to, to life than that. And so, uh, yeah, I um I went ahead and, and tried out the military and I will tell you my first couple of days talking to my recruiter. I oh, hell no. I knew from the very beginning it just wasn't going to work. Well, well, that that brings up another question then. Why the Army? Why why not one of the other branches? Yes, so... Uh, no offense to the army because it is it is my my second true love. But uh, I will I'll tell you it wasn't my first choice. I initially went into the Air Force recruiter's office and the Marine recruiter's office, and both of them in that order said, "Sorry, bro, uh, no GEDs allowed." And uh, it looked like something out of a cartoon. Wah, 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 as I walked out of the office, so I went to the Navy, and they said, uh, "Yeah, yeah, we will we will take uh, GEDs. Be back at this time." And I was there at that time and they didn't show up and uh <laughs> wow really? so i was sitting outside their office and in comes uh staff sergeant Kampfer, and uh 
He said, you want a place to sit that's a little more comfortable than this? And the rest is history. <laughs> he said, by the way, we got more boats than the Navy. So. <laughs> what was, what, well, then once you made the decision uh, that it was going to be Army, uh, then how did you come across MP work, military yeah. police? So the short version of that story is it was not my first choice initially. I um, was... Uh, Initially, I came in the Army as a Patriot Missile crew member and realized that it just wasn't for me. That particular uh, assignment was not where I wanted to be. And uh, so I um, uh, started looking around as ways to get out. And I was. I, I went. I tested in the state of New Hampshire for the, uh, the regional law enforcement test, and I was going to get out and be a civilian cop. It was, you know, I, I think law enforcement was in my blood at that point. I realized that that's what I wanted to do. And I couldn't initially become an MP once again, the whole, uh, you know, education piece of it. And so I, um, was going to try to become a CID agent. And that was my long-term goal. If I stayed in the military and, um, didn't, it wasn't working out. So I said, listen, if you can make me a broadcast journalist or a firefighter, two things I knew the, re the retention guy couldn't do, uh, the uh, I said I, I'll stay in. He comes back. He's like, "You're an MP." And again, <laughs> a few months later, I was like, "Damn, that wasn't the way it was supposed to go." <laughs> and so, a few months later, I'm in uh, I'm in uh, Fort McClellan, Alabama, uh, ready to be a uh, a military policeman. So, so then uh, let, let's fast forward if we could to the end of your career. Mm -hmm. uh, how many years? How many years do you have in, and and what rank did you get out as? Just under 21, I retired as a uh, first sergeant and E8. And um, part of part of me, you know, the heart of hearts and a longer story, wanted to stay in and see if I could make SAR major. But I realized that uh, I had I had hit this point where uh, I, I needed to make a couple other decisions, and so uh, I went ahead and retired as an E8. I, I want to know what was the most interesting assignment that you had during your time in the army. You know, that's that's a loaded question and one of the hardest because I will tell you my years as a specialist and those vets that are out there, they know all branches across the board. You hit E4 and you run the place and you know it. And so my E4 years uh, were probably among my most interesting, made some of my best friends, lifelong friends, and learned more about me and, and who I was. Uh, but I would say if, if put on the spot, I would say it was the, uh, the year I worked the Abergrave investigation as a special investigator for, uh, uh, the incidents at Abergrave. Well, what, what, tell me about that investigation. How did you come to be involved in it and, and what role did you play in that investigation? Yeah. So, uh, flip side of the coin, uh, completely unexpected. I was, uh, a military police platoon sergeant and uh an order came down that they needed a uh, an investigator a you know experienced investigator for a special assignment they, did, they didn't go into detail about who or what so i got called in and said uh, hey listen you're one of two that are eligible for this assignment it's going to involve a little deployment time we, we don't know exactly what you're you're going to end up doing on it but just know that you got to go to this briefing and uh so i uh, i went and found out that it was uh, as a investigator for the incidents and it's all over the news at this point, right? Like, I mean, this, you go back to uh, 2004, it was, it was everywhere at this point. And so I figured I had already read one of the reports on it. I'm like, how much more investigation do you need? Uh, at this point, I mean, you got general officers assigned to investigate this thing. I, I realized very quickly <laughs> that I was not assigned to the prosecution. I was not assigned to one of those special teams. I was actually assigned to the defense team of one of the accused. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so uh, 
the the role remains the same, right? I think we all, you know, it, it took a second for me to reconcile. Not something I ever imagined I would do. Um, and initially, the the conversation he and I had was um, one that he he didn't want me on his team. I said, "Listen, I, you know, I've seen the pictures. I understand the way this all went. Uh, you're probably going to spend some time in jail." Well, that's not what the defense investigator is supposed to tell the accused, uh, but is what I've been you know saying to the accused for the longest time. So it's where my my mind went. But I will tell you, I in that it was a better part of a year, just under eight months, uh, that I was on that assignment. I learned more about the law, more about uh, how how the process works uh, than I had ever been shown on the other side. And I will tell you, when when you flip the script and you look at it from the perspective of the accused, the it remains the same. I mean, the the, the man committed crimes, uh, but. There was a lot of evidence that I was able to find during that time uh, that was not necessarily what the prosecution would have preferred I found. The, the short version of that is that uh, it, it by far, so I mean, Mike, you you and I have, have talked, you know, multiple times about, uh, you know, ethics and how I got involved in that character development space. This is really what, uh, you know, the, the, the kickoff for that, this is what started that game. And I realized that there's there's got to be more to character and ethical development than we're currently doing for people. Well, well let, let me ask you then, would it be safe to say that despite what many people believe, uh, these types of incidents don't fit into these little 30 second sound or video bites? Would you agree with that? hundred percent. Well said. I, I mean, when you, that, that's what's happening, uh, Brent. You know, when you when you're watching the news and you see some of these things happening with our civilian law enforcement, it, it really you're seeing a commercial is what it comes down to, and, and there are things that go beyond. Yeah, and I I think that's an important point is to to get a to get all sides, just not what's spoon fed to you. I guess it's about finding the truth. Wherever the truth takes you, that that's where a, a, a an investigator, a law enforcement officer, should go. So, so that that kind of leads me to this next question here because it, it, we we touched on it already. How is it different being a military police officer as opposed to being a civilian police officer? What 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 do you recognize as say that's not the way it would have happened in the army? Yeah. So I only have as a point of reference, just to be fair to to all of the listeners, is my entire career is only military law enforcement. I have a, song, a strong, solid network of civilian law enforcement acquaintances and, and, and true friends uh, and have spent a lot of time in the civilian law enforcement training space. But I've never actually experienced it the way you all have. And so here's what I understand to be the differences. Number one, uh, the, the motto for the, the military police corps is... Um, of the troops and for the troops, right? And so the shared identity that we have as military professionals extends in and out of the branch of military police. And sure, there's occasionally the adversarial role that happens in the uh, the NCO club or the you know wherever the the DUI at the gate. There is a little bit of that, but at the same time. Um, there is no comparison, uh, direct comparison that I've seen as far as that shared identity. Now, one of the things that I think the civilian law enforcement is really good at, and some of our best leaders and law enforcement professionals out there are doing a phenomenal job of 
helping the community and their peers as, as fellow professionals realize that it is the same. It's just the spectrum is broader. You come from the same communities. You, you are the same people. You go to the same churches. You go, uh, your kids attend the same school. And so while the spectrum is broader, that is one difference I see is, you know, the shared identity is a big piece of it. The other thing is, too, when it comes to the law, uh, the Uniform Code of Military Justice is a lot more clear than uh, some of the interpretation that's out there for you all. So it's interesting to me from an outside perspective, looking at military police, uh, there does seem to be at least the stereotypical adversarial relationship. You know, it's like, uh, oh, here come the MPs and everybody scatters. Nobody wants to talk to you. Uh, nobody wants to be your friend. Did you find that to be the case during your career? Give and take. So there were times, different assignments I had where, uh, sure, as an investigator or uh, when you put on the, the road uniform and you're working the road and you show up in the, the white car at the barracks and uh, yeah, yeah, there was that. And, you know, trust me, like this is the fun part. Like I, I'm able to have a lot of those conversations with my civilian peers, uh, both the the fun, you know, day to day, the the love of the job and, you know, what it's like to show up and have a crowd run from you and, you know, like like that sort of stuff. Uh, plus some of the, the traumatic law enforcement experiences. Right. But um, on the other hand, uh, when we switch over to the other uniform and this is what really kind of solidifies that shared identity and is different is that when we deploy, it uh, doesn't matter if you got MP on your, your shoulder or not, uh, you're all in the same sandbox and uh, TCPs, traffic control points don't happen uh, the same way without the military police, uh, route escorts, that kind of stuff. And it's, it's legit and sure at that point it becomes not true adversarial, but yeah, there is an us and them and the joking and, and that sort of thing. I mean, yeah, you can't spell wimp without MP. <laughs> I've never heard that, but that is daggone true right there. But let, let, let me ask you this, Ray. Did, did you do a little bit of your, your a time up at West Point, sure United States Military Academy? And, and you and I have talked because you're really big into, into, into leadership and leadership ethics. What was it like to serve at what many people view and I view as one of the true strongholds of the leadership principles. How, how was that tour for you? Phenomenal. When you asked me earlier what my favorite assignment was, those were the three that I, you know, my my PFC years and specialist years, I would agree been that. And I will tell you, uh, it, especially being a non-commissioned officer, an enlisted soldier at West Point, there's just, you know, not, not a lot gets selected to do that. And I had two of what I would consider to be the coolest assignments in the Army. Uh, one was as the equal opportunity advisor uh, for the superintendent. So a member of the principal staff uh, when it comes to equity and diversity and uh, that sort of thing. And then um, the second was as the uh, senior enlisted advisor for the Department of Military Instruction, DMI, uh, where we oversaw all military training for the cadets and the uh, strategic studies uh, degree program. And so uh, those two assignments just... Man, I will tell you, so eye-opening. It is the preeminent leader development institution in the country. Like, I mean, hands down. Go Army. I, I'm jealous of that one right there. Just the, 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 the folklore and the mystique that comes along with it, that's, that's fantastic. But there came a point where, where you decided it was time. And you ended up retiring from the Army. And so I guess my next question would be, how is it that you came to be involved 
with a group called First Health. So I retired from the Army in 2016, and I met them right around the same time. As I was sitting on the couch just around my retirement time, I can't remember if it was right after, right before, but my time was over. And uh, the third in a series of soldiers who had worked for me somewhat closely over the years, at least one of them, uh, died by suicide. And uh, meanwhile, the 22 push-up thing was happening. It was kind of a popular thing back then. And I'd been challenged to do it. And I got on Facebook and kind of did this, you know, Facebook Live wasn't a thing at that point, but uh, the videos were. And I uh, I called everybody out. I said, listen, you, we're doing these, you know, push-up challenges and I've been asked to do them, but uh, what, what are we really doing? How are we conveying that we care? And so I did. I started doing the push-up challenges, but every night I was just trying to remind my friends that, guys reach out to me. I, I will listen. And that, you know, hashtag didn't start with us until years later, but uh, this is significant. We're dying at a very high rate. And those of us that aren't killing ourselves, how are we actually getting after self-actualization and becoming the people we truly want to be for ourselves, our communities, our families? And something's got to happen. And so I kind of started on this journey uh, looking for people and connecting with people. And I ran into Karen Solomon at ILEDA in uh, Chicago, the International Law Enforcement Educators and Trainers Association, which uh, you are, uh, you know, uh, definitely a vested member of and, and highly respected there. And, uh, and I'm pretty sure that's where we met uh, at some point there. Uh, but I met Karen and... Um, she was telling me about this group that she had started to pull together and it wasn't called first help or even blue help at that point. It was something else. And, um, immediately fell in love with the idea. My, you know, my, my true passion obviously was the army and military police, but so closely connected with civilian law enforcement and so many friends in that space, I didn't realize there was a problem there too. And so, uh, that became the, the focus. I presented at a conference and this many years later, I'm the, uh, the chief learning officer for the organization. Just out of curiosity, when you were posting those videos, did you have any folks reach out to you or did you find that it, even then it was hard for them to open up and talk, even if you're lending out a hand? All the above. Uh, so, yes, I did. I had people actually um, uh, tell me that I was part of the problem by doing the push-ups and, you know, you're a you're going to make people decide to do it, which we all know now evidence shows is not the reality. We talk about it. People don't do it. It's when we don't talk about it. Uh, but I had others, yes, absolutely reach out to me and tell me about themselves, tell me about their friends uh, and start really opening communication. But you are 100 percent on Brent as far as the um, the stigma. And I, I could see it in people like we would be talking in, in public somewhere, you know, like we'd meet at a conference or whatever, and they, they would share with me just a small snippet. And I couldn't understand why I'm putting in all this work and um, they're not talking. You, you can speak to this better than I can. But uh, when, when when I was a little baby police officer, um uh, it was considered unprofessional to have emotions. And in fact, we were taught that at the police academy. So we were taught from the very beginning that you don't talk about that kind of stuff. I mean, that was the culture. And, and so we have an entire, well, multiple generations of police officers. That's the norm. And I, I would bet that your experience was the same in the Army. 100%. And, and just like, you know, you, you probably heard and everybody else listening to this, if I ask for help, my career is over. Uh, the second I raise my hand and say, I need help, I go see a counselor. Uh, and you know, the truth is, and many people can probably identify with this. I remember sharing that with my family. 
telling my family that if I ask for help, if I ever need to talk to a counselor, I might as well hang it up. I'm done. Um, and that that lives on. And the thing is, what we find, you know, day after day in this, I will have uh, a 10 or 15 year retired person, uh, much more retired than, than you and I, Mike, in one of our classes, sitting there with a, you know, four or five month FTO kid in the same space, sharing the same mindset. And it's yes, we're doing what we can to smash the stigma. But dude, you hit the nail on the head. It is alive and well. It's amazing to me how we, we wear these things almost as a badge of honor. You know, you know the, the, that uh, we wear, how we can handle the, the horrific things that the people in, in the first responder profession have to see, and it doesn't affect us. And I, I, I propose to people that if it doesn't affect you, that that's even a bigger problem that we should be talking about because you should be affected. You should still be able to do the job, but it should affect you. Absolutely. But, but t- tell me about the mission. What is the mission, the, the basic mission of First Help? Yeah. So uh, to make it easy on ourselves, we actually made it part of our name. So the uh, the mission, obviously, is to uh, raise awareness about the uh, traumas of law enforcement and uh, all first responders um, and to uh, smash the stigma that's preventing uh, first responders from seeking help. But uh, the name H-E-L-P is uh, an acronym and it's uh, first help and it's uh, honor. We work incredibly hard to honor the members of the profession who are lost to suicide and uh, through their families who live on as their legacy. Uh, And uh, in most cases, nearly all, uh, the individuals we lose to suicide had an incredibly honorable career and lived as honorable people. And in their final moments, they didn't realize that there were places to turn for help. And suicide is completely irrational, except to the irrational mind. And in that moment where it's the only way they see out, it makes sense. And so we work hard to honor them by taking care of their families, uh, by taking care of the departments that are left behind and shattered. Uh, And we do this through camps and our honor box program, uh, our honor wall. We've got a physical memorial being built in Texas. So, I mean, we're doing what we can there. Uh, Educate, Mike, you you know full well uh, some of the conversations we've had in this educate space and the work we're doing there. But it's much more than just our responder readiness program and uh, the public information stuff we do on social media. But uh, it is uh, it's deep and we're working very hard to raise awareness. And in the lead space, it is all about changing hearts and minds and uh, getting the old guard on the stigma to unfold their arms and lean in and just be willing to be a part of the conversation. And we do this through, you know, leadership engagements. We do it through uh, helping agencies with policy development and that sort of thing. And then above all else, it's about prevention. And whether that is our I Will Listen campaign, our So What campaign, or uh, any of the other things we're doing recently, we were part of uh, one called The Elephant in the Room. Uh, Whatever we can do to be a part of that, just to get folks aware of what's happening, that's where we're at. Have you found that the prevention piece isn't just about those ones that are are considering suicide right now, but there are many in this profession that are killing themselves long term because they're they're holding these things in and they're not seeking the help. And it's, you know, uh, the psychological side starting to affect the physical side. Is that also part of the mission? One hundred percent. And so uh, what we, we often talk about is uh, left a bang. And 
uh, when I, I do these um, these sessions, especially with executives, because you only get a little bit of time, I ask them, you know, if you could change one thing in the profession that would help your people, what would it be? And of course, you know, I show up with the logo, the First Help logo, and everybody thinks Joe wants to talk about suicide prevention. And while yes, as a suicide prevention organization, I absolutely do, but uh, we are not a one-trick pony. None of us involved in the senior leadership only think in that direction. We've got so much more to think about. And uh, Mike, you hit the nail on the head. I draw an imaginary line and I say, you know, if, if at this end of the line, we've got suicide and oh, by the way, in many cases, murder suicide. And we think of that as potentially the worst possible outcome. And I, I would agree and in, in, in that is, right? Except for the fact that far left of that, We've got good men and women leaving the profession for a variety of reasons, whether it's disciplinary because, uh, you know, pick, pick an issue. And we've all heard and seen those things, right? Um, or how many times do people almost brag about the number of practice marriages they've had? right? Or, uh, you know, all of those other behaviors that aren't necessarily career ending, but damn, we're not living our best lives. And the reality is, you know, when we look at just the effects of chronic stress on our, our nervous system, on our overall heart health, right? Like uh, what cortisol does to our bodies on a daily basis is a street fight inside of ourselves. And yet we, we walk around and you even alluded to it earlier as if it's some sort of badge of honor. Like I've been through all this stuff. And I mean, quite frankly, like, I've, I've lived that life. But what really is there uh, to, to having that as our badge of honor? Shouldn't it be that I've lived that life and I'm here to tell you that there's a better way, right? You don't have to go through multiple marriages to be successful in this career, by the way. Well, we've got the marriage piece. You also have the alcohol piece, uh, but you also have that part, that adrenaline junkie. Who, who is constantly seeking out those the, those high risk things. And, and listen, the people who do this job, they're incredibly brave, but there are some who are seeking it out because that helps to serve as a mask for some of the pain that they have. There, there's a book, and I think you and I've talked about it, uh, called Resilience by Eric Greitens. It's written by a SEAL, former Navy SEAL, for a SEAL. And uh, for that one right there, it just hit me so hard because the, the guy was wasn't suicidal all the time but the life that he was living was killing him slowly and it was damaging everything he came in contact with we, we see that so frequently in terms of um the both on and off the job those you know uh dopamine seeking behaviors and whether it is um you know responding to whatever call or, or looking for those conflict situations in uh, both off the off the job stuff, right? In their own homes. Uh, and then, you know, the, the spending is, is one behavior that I, I think you mentioned as well. But, uh, you know, the 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 love of that or the uh, how many how many people do we know out there who live for that fast ride right so it's you know the the motorcycle rides the you know whatever the adrenaline seeking behaviors well here's the reality is the same uh, high level of uh, cortisol that's causing that stress that keeps us in that 
peak condition that is deteriorating our arteries, uh, literally, in, in some cases, causing dendritic shrinkage of our prefrontal cortex, or even uh, causing us to reroute some of the myelination that causes us to think things instead of with that creative and uh, high functioning part of our brain, developing those coping skills that are spontaneous, responsive, and, and creating biases. And not all biases are bad, and we know that, but creating those shortcuts in how we think and literally causing us not to be as effective in, in the front part of our brain, all because of seeking that same thing, that, that constant high of stress. Oh, I have to ask is I think the job that you're doing is just completely admirable. I mean, getting the word out and then helping these folks, but you have to hit several fronts. One, you've got the people that are saying, I don't have a problem. And then once you do, they do realize they have a problem, getting them to open up to accept what you're saying. And then after that, you got folks that get the information, but they don't know how to apply it to their lives. So if you can kind of work us through and step us through those uh, different phases, how do you get folks to kind of buy into what you're, you're talking about? Yeah, Brent, what a great question. So, um, since 2017, we first started really pushing this because a lot of people look at First Help and Blue Help as a statistics organization. Like we, we just count suicides. There is so much more to what we do than that. And I hope, you know, we're conveying that here today. But, um, one of the things we had to do was understand what the problem was and be able to show that. So we do collect statistics and share those numbers. And when people start realizing that, more officers die by suicide every year than in the line of duty. And uh, we're just now beginning to collect data on other first responders, but we suspect it's it's about the same, right, is what we're going to find. We had to open eyes and we, we had to do that with a little bit of facts and a little bit of uh, exposure to that. And so uh, that's largely where we start with uh, the more uh, senior level and those who want to see the facts. We had to show that. Uh, but then the reality is that we all live in that state of denial, like Mike was talking about earlier, where uh, we're we're constantly in that, I got this, right? I don't need the help. Being able to show that we're losing people who are senior and solid and not, you know, if, if we're stereotyping suicide as something that affects only the weakest among us, we're still in the wrong place because we're losing badasses on a regular basis. People who we look up to uh, as, as pillars of, of our profession, our communities. Uh, and so by showing that, by helping people see the reality there, that it's not, it's not some thing that plagues just weak-minded people. We're, we're past that point. So that's one thing we do for that particular audience. The other thing is too, when we walk in with a baseball bat of information, we say, hey, here are all the problems, right? And we, we do it in a lecture style format. Nobody wants that. And there's a lot of rejection at that point. Well, that one doesn't apply to me and that one doesn't apply to me, so I'm good. Now, let's have a, a genuine conversation. In fact, I want to be out of the conversation when I'm in the room making this happen. I want the two of you to talk about it. Dude, I have, I have seen some walls come down among the hardest. And so those are the ones, the naysayers. We got to unfold the arms of that stigma on the old guard, uh, the, the old, old guard on the stigma, rather. Then to the group that, to kind of follow on to that, uh, the, the group, once they get it, right, and they know they need help, there's a barrier to getting that help, finding those resources. 
And so uh, we have um, firsthealth.org. Uh, that is uh, our website that has resources vetted by our organization and the community that we've established around that on our social media platforms. And we've got people who never speak up. We don't even know they're there, but they join us on social media and they follow these and these different resources pop up. And what I really like, it's this inspiring moment about why we do what we do. Um, when I see a conversation happening in a thread and somebody says, hey, this is happening, and way down, somebody will tag somebody else and say, hey, here's a resource, right? And uh, I think I think that's what needs to happen in that space is bringing the resources to them and making them available. And by the way, uh, nobody at first help believes for a second that we're the only organization that can do that. Like there, the, this is going to take an army of organizations to make happen. And so, uh, stay connected. If, if you know of an organization in your community, connect with them, connect with us, connect with them and share whatever resources they have available because, uh, that's, what's going to prevent the next. At Virtual Academy, we're helping our clients build better prepared public safety professionals by offering high-level training provided by engaging national experts. With hundreds of hours of training available instantly, Virtual Academy offers the functionality your officers need so they can train as their schedules permit. Find out how Virtual Academy can meet the needs of your agency today. Visit virtualacademy.com for a complete list of courses, training resources, and more. Virtual Academy because you deserve more. I, I heard someone say this and I can't remember who said it. I wish I did, but they said that one of the hardest things about what we're talking about is that if somebody suffers a physical injury, you know, if they, an IED attack and they have a limb blown off, it's easy to convince them and their superiors and their family that there's an actual problem. But when we're talking about these mental issues, the, the, these struggles that they're having, they're not so easily seen. I don't want to speak stereotypically, but what are some things that family members and loved ones and friends can be looking for uh, to give them an indication that maybe it's time to step in and see if we can help? Yeah. So we having those conversations with family members is something first help has done from the very beginning and family members have been a part of our story and our journey, like, uh, you know, honor, right. It, it all goes back to that. And so they became a member early on. And what we've heard from them over the years is that, um, watching for those signs of isolation and it happens, you know, think back on our own careers, right? Mike, Mike, you and I talking here now, but anybody else who's been there, we start off as those rookies who are just eager and we want, and I mean, literally chasing that next possible thing. And I remember being on a 12 hour shift, knowing that as an MP, you only get so many of these before you go back to the field. I am moment to moment, like I off this stop to that one. And I, you know, I'm looking for the next call. And if one comes in, I'm going to volunteer to go to it. And, uh, it's, it's no different. And then all of a sudden something happens at around year five, uh, we start to see this hardening, right? And this is where we've reached that, that point that, uh, folks start to pull away. And as we, um, we talk to families, we hear this time and time again, that around year five, we start seeing this pulling away from those things that we once enjoyed, uh, becoming a little bit more moody and irritable. Um, and so, seeing that and discussing it, not being afraid to talk about it 
is an incredibly important thing for family members, especially towards the beginning of a career, right? Um, if, if somebody's joining the law enforcement family in a person's mid-career, right? They were 10, 12 years and you're getting married now or you're starting to form a relationship or you're a friend who uh, is coming into this space. The other thing is too, don't be afraid to talk about it, right? Like you see these changes in behavior, don't be afraid to talk about it. Ask the questions. Uh, nobody, and I'll tell you what question not to ask, what's the worst thing you've ever seen, right? Like if you start there, you're, you're, you're starting to ask the wrong questions. But when you say something along the lines of, hey, I just heard you say uh, today was a particularly bad day. What, what made it hard? be there and be prepared to have that conversation. So uh, there's that. The other thing is for family members, um, vicarious trauma is, it, it's getting you. It, hands down, we we understand that it is a, a heavy burden on families and um, get help. Be part of, uh, you know, have your own resources. Do not be afraid uh, to connect with a counselor or to reach out. Use EAP, right? And I, I'm, I'm going to advocate a little bit for EAPs right now. And I know I uh, cringe across the, the listening network right now when I uttered those three letters, right? Uh, but the reality is they're getting better than they were the last time you heard about them. And they're only going to get better if we use them and we vet them and we're, we're familiar with them. And so a good place to start is with family members. Have your family members use them because then uh, we, we begin to develop a relationship there. So, um, yeah, I, I think... I think that's a couple of things. I know there's more uh, if I were to sit here and drone on and on, but there's more. Well, and you've been in the space for what, past four or five years you've been with First Help, is that correct? Correct. Have you seen uh, a shift in attitude towards mental health and maybe the stigma going away just a little bit or seeing the, the, the tide shift, even society as a whole, kind of accepting this and being more understanding? Absolutely. So I will, uh, I'll tell you, and I'm, I'm glad you asked because I wanted to make sure to at least, if not finish with this, cover it somewhere near the end is times are changing. And we know this because, um, major corporations that have very little vested interest in mental health, other than to see, uh, society improved and to see the profession, uh, take care of itself. Are coming on board. That's that's one thing. You got organizations like FirstNet who have uh, completely committed through their their health and wellness initiatives uh, to make these resources available. And so I would encourage anybody just go Google right now uh, FirstNet Health and Wellness, uh, and you will find so many organizations, such a, a huge benefit uh, that they offer. So that's that, right? Then and, and that's just the the corporate piece and. Uh, but now what we're seeing across the board is organizations that were having the hardest time uh, just getting involved in the conversation back in 2017 are now sitting at the table and are influencing things in their communities and um, are being a part of the conversation. Leaders who in 2017 didn't even want to have the conversation with us are now asking for us or other organizations to come to their departments and be a part of it. Now, the other day, uh, one of our, our family members was presenting in Illinois and uh, to avoid you know too much uh, disclosure, I won't give names or agencies or anything, but um, there was a chief who um, was involved in the conversation. He said, but all that stuff seemed to be a little bit on the, the personal side. And uh, 
she said, after, after class, I want you to come back and maybe we have this conversation again. Uh, and is it really only on the personal side? Came back afterwards. We, we may be training with that agency in the near future uh, just because of the, the enlightenment that's happening. Senior leaders are opening their eyes. They're at least showing up to training, even if they didn't initially agree with what's being said. And I'll tell you, uh, in 2017, it was difficult to get anybody above the rank of, you know, peer support specialists, whatever rank they were, in into a conference or, or conversation with us, right? At this point, we've got, uh, just in the state of Illinois alone, we've had three different chiefs associations, regional chiefs associations, ask us to come in and talk. I mean, it is, you know, just senior leaders who are really making the headway here. So I, I hope that answers your question, Brent, but uh, we are seeing change. We're seeing a lot of it really fast. And this is going to take some time. You've got people that have years and generations of people that had this mentality of, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. And now you've got to break those down and kind of start fresh. Absolutely. Yep. Well, the, the beautiful thing is Brent talked about how it asked if you'd seen any change. And one of the things I've seen even in First Help is an evolution in these, for lack of a better term, uh, campaigns. You know, there was the I will listen. You know, to, to letting people know that you need to talk. And, but then we realized that wasn't enough. And, and you went to I will talk because we, we need we need to model that activity. And, and then one of the latest ones is the one. So what? What's the so what campaign about? Yeah. So Mark Aurelius uh, has this quote that really resonated with us. Jeff McGill, our CEO, is a uh, uh, a big stoic and uh, really kind of has influenced me uh, towards stoicism. And so Marcus Aurelius offers us, um, uh, you're a soldier on the wall of battle. So what if you can't climb up without another soldier's help? Uh, and it really does get after the, uh, the, it's okay. You could be the baddest among us, right? And the, the one that we all look towards and, there's going to come a time where you need to reach your hand out. So what? And uh, so what if you can't climb up without another's help? And so what we've done was we took that and we made that our 2022 campaign and really kind of um, want to get after. We have our so what Sundays, right? That are so what if you need to reach out to this resource, whether it's cop to cop or, uh, you know, pick any, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline or us or whoever. So what if you need to reach out? The other thing is, so what if you need to take a day off, right? Like, so what? Like, it, it's all going to be there when it's all said and done. The one thing that needs to be the same on the other side of it is you. So what if you need help? And uh, speaking of Dr. McGill, fantastic, fantastic uh, guy, member of law enforcement, supporter of law enforcement. He's also co-authored a book, and, and I, I, I cannot recall the title of it right now. But uh, uh, do you happen to know that that title, Joe? Uh, the Price They Pay. And I will tell you, I'm, I'm a bit surprised, actually. You know he wrote the book? that he was involved in the writing of it because Karen Solomon, the co-author often forgets to include him in the, uh, <laughs> so I, I actually had, we were at an event and she, uh, she turned to me and said, do you want Joe to sign it too? Uh, <laughs> so the, uh, yeah. So I think 99.9% .9 of that is a, a long living joke, but yeah, the two of them uh, wrote a book together, and it was uh, about the uh, the trauma traumas and trials of uh, of law enforcement. 
and, and we'll make sure we get information on that book into the show notes uh, so our listeners can do that. But uh, I also want to ask you a question because I just received an email here recently uh, from First Help, and it, it's about uh, a mission-ready retreat. Well, what, what's the mission-ready retreat all about? Yeah, so um, – Again, back to, to FirstNet as a uh, as a sponsor of, of training, uh, they've made it possible for us to put on a retreat where first responders can go to a somewhat remote location. This one's in Charlestown, um, and spend in in this case it's uh, seven days, but there are others that will be five days, uh, like our, our one in Texas was. This time together in partly in fellowship, but I don't, we, we want to be careful not to make this sound, especially for senior leaders who are listening. This is not the, the kind of retreat where, you know, you get to go and put your feet up for uh, seven days and have people bring you Mai Tais. In fact, there's, there's no alcohol at all. Uh, it is um, seven days of uh, complete immersion in uh, what our responder readiness program with elements of a couple of our other training programs, uh, complete reboot on sleep and sleep hygiene. Uh, there is a team coming in from Movement RX to go over, uh, you know, uh, a team. When I say a team, they're phenomenal. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Teresa Larson is a uh, physical therapist and uh, spends a lot of time in that movement mobility space. And uh, she's also a uh, Marine combat vet and uh, hardcore individual. And uh, uh, John McCaskill is a retired Navy SEAL commander who is deep in the mindfulness space. And so uh, the two of them will be there. But in addition to that, you've got Steve Huff, our COO, and uh, Rob uh, Winner, uh, our retreat director. They spend an entire week going over uh, everything from, like I said, uh, journaling and mindfulness. We, we talk about spiritual combat, which uh, for those that are unfamiliar with the concept of spiritual combat, spirituality, it is not religion. It is uh, becoming in touch with uh, what we believe and why we believe it and being able to stand on that. And a lot of times what we find is, especially in suicidality, is a loss of touch with that. And um, so spend some time there. And then um, also that connection to others, right? So there's uh, evenings around the uh, the fire pit uh, where uh, it is intentional, uh, you know, journaling time, right? And, and spending time in that space, but also uh, connecting with one another, sharing stories. Uh, and so incredibly beneficial. We did our uh, kickoff in Texas last month and it was hugely successful. At this point, I can tell you, I've got two senior leaders who have reached back out to us, one of which wants to host the uh, responder readiness program at her department now because of this, uh, a deputy chief uh, who got reports back from the folks she sent there. So um, yeah, hugely successful and very powerful. Well, Joe, and not without you know mentioning anyone specifically, I'm sure there's folks that are listening and they say, well, this sounds good in theory, but does it really work in the application process and are there any examples you can cite to say yes look this person here is my success story here's how it and showing an illustration of how this has worked yeah so on the mission readiness retreat side um what we're finding is it, we have not done uh, a level three training evaluation on that one yet not enough time has passed but uh what we're finding anecdotally just in the feedback we're getting uh is for instance the agency where the deputy chief says this is good stuff uh my people immediately came back uh more ready to do their jobs more uh, um, uh more well off and, and ready um but 
more than that, what we're finding in both the retreat space and our, um, our responder readiness space is the reports of um, folks reaching out to us, right? Or folks reaching out to other resources. Uh, family members, an example, we got a text uh, not too long ago from a family member who said, uh, thanks for sending my husband back. That's cool. Like that, when I just got chills actually. Like when family members realize that that person that they, you know, had, you know, however many years ago is still inside uh, and you're able to kind of chip away that facade that everybody puts on, uh, that in and of itself is enough for me to keep going. Well, what, tell me, give me a thumbnail view of what the responder readiness program is all about. What, 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 what are we going to talk about? Yeah. So you come to the responder readiness program. It's a four hour half day event where we talk about uh, performance, persistence, and prevention. And the real quick version of the performance thing is you have to talk about stress when you're going to talk about uh, suicide prevention and mental health wellness. It has to be discussed, right? But we've had so much of it for so long, we don't want to spend a lot of time in the space of here are the things to look for in uh, you know these traumatic events. Well, yes, we cover them, but not in the same amount of detail as, as others. Um, more, what we talk about is what is cumulative stress? We talk about it from a hoarder's house perspective and uh, why it's important to, to clean house once in a while. And then we talk about trauma in an overall uh, general sense. So we're not re-traumatizing the people that come to us because they know full well what it is. And if they don't, they can ask the person sitting next to them because there's enough stories to go around, right? And so we don't, we don't dwell too much on that. But what we do is we get after the upside of stress, Dr. Kelly McGonigal's work on what are our stress response options? It doesn't have to be fight or flight or freeze or posture, right? We've got other options. So what does it mean to look at stress as a challenge response? And how do I take this and turn it into, I'm going to crush this. This is going to be my swan song right here. If I do one thing right, let this stressful moment define me. That's one. Excited or delight are those times where we're scared shitless. And what does that look like? And there's that time, you know, in the class, every time we have people talk, whether it's a firefighter talking about the first time they either went into a live burn or they go back to when they were in training and their very first experience putting on the mask and having to crawl through the obstacle course. Or uh, what's it like to be stacked up outside the door? I had a state trooper in my last class talk about, we all know the line in the sand is drawn at the door, right? And, and so your first time there, what's it like? And uh, well, to be honest with you, it's exciting and that's okay. And so these stressful moments, what does that look like? And then lastly, we talk about protect the team. And uh, there is this thing that happens. We, under stress, we crave connection. And oxytocin is the counterbalance to cortisol. And Interestingly, and we, we talk a lot more in detail about this in the class, but how do you create cortisol or oxytocin rather? We know that's through connection. We know that, you know, you give a hug and that sort of thing. But here's the reality is that it's also through service. Now, the average police officer sees uh, three traumatic events every six months. And if you do the math on that in a period of a, a, even half a career, uh, we look at the cortisol effects of that and what that does to the heart. Most would die from a heart attack within their first 10 years, but largely because of the service connection to oxytocin and the service of others, what that does. Now, if we are intentional about that and flip that uh, and make it a very intentional thing we do, 
we can do a lot of good. So anyway, that's the performance piece, our three uh, responses to stress in a nutshell. Uh, the persistence piece, we talk about what those resources are. We've talked a little bit about resources here, but how do you find them? Here's a card that helps with that, but uh, how do you find your own? Because that card doesn't cover the 211 in your area. That card doesn't cover the 100 club in your area. And so uh, how do you find those? So we spend a little bit of time talking about that. But the big piece in the persistent space is uh, what we call our um, results-oriented communication. And I, I won't go into too much detail on it. Come to the class and figure it out. Uh, but, uh, and there's, you know, we'll, we'll, we have some resources on our website and that kind of stuff. But uh, it is a very simple, structured, I sense this. This is the story I'm telling myself. I think this. Uh, this is how I feel about it. And believe me, those two get mixed up. I think and I feel and getting a room full of hardcore professionals to talk about I feel interestingly isn't as hard as people think. It actually does happen and it happens pretty well. Uh, and then this is what I want and let's do this. It's a very simple five-step process uh, and it's uh, a scaffolding. It's not the actual conversation, it's just a structure. And then we give our, our range card, the, uh, uh, the five skills of range, the resilient skills. Recognize the good, active, constructive, responding. Notice the world around you, get up and move, and energy management. That's that tactical breathing and, and dashboarding stuff. That's it in a nutshell. You said the, the thumbnail sketch, but I will tell you I'm watching at this point, we've trained uh, just under 500 people on this program in the six months that it's been active. It is highly regarded at this point by rank and file and senior leaders as being effective. And it's largely those resilient skills and the uh, communication stuff. Because for long enough, we've talked about what are the signs, what to look for as far as different traumatic events, but a lot of time we're left wondering, what do we do now? And so we've got a couple of things in this that take us into the, what do we do now space? Well, well let me ask you then, if, if one of our listeners wants to bring that training to the, their agency, where do they go to get information uh, so that they can try and do that? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, firsthelp.org slash training. Uh, we'll bring you right to where you need to be to uh, start that exploration because uh, Mike, I didn't want to take up too much time, but we've also got a supervisor class. We have a family class and we have a provider class to get providers into the space of how do you, how do you work with first responders? Because there are a lot of providers out there who truly want to, they're phenomenal counselors, but have no idea how to connect with us. And so if we do just a little bit to bring those people into that space, we'll be far better off. And I'll tell you, uh, organization right now, just in case any of the listeners are curious, how do I shortcut that? Uh, look up Academy Hour uh, Certified First Responder Counselor Program. What they are doing there is phenomenal and they uh, accelerate that process to bring counselors into that space. And I know you, you talked a little bit about family and friends and that's another thing that you offer. And we just briefly touched on that, but that's, you, you have several different areas that we want to explore more. And we definitely want to welcome you back at some point so we can kind of dig in deep to some of those areas. Absolutely. I, I, I would love for that to happen because there is so much more to talk about there uh, as far as uh, what we could be doing with family members and, um, you know, even even from a supervisory leadership perspective, Mike, you and I, and part of the reason I didn't go here was because I know you and I can nerd out about the leadership stuff <laughs> all day, right? So I didn't want to go there. But uh, on that front, there's a lot that we do that uh, we are very proud of the work we've put into it. And uh, I'm looking forward to, yeah, if you want to have that conversation, I would love to share that. I think that was such an insightful thing you said about tra training those that... Uh, 
those that we're going to talk to to interact with us. Uh, you, you know, we recognize the need for for specialized doctors, and we recognize the uh, need a lot of times for specialized lawyers. Probably needed on that front as well. So, uh, one, one last question about First Help, if I could: If somebody wants to help out First Help, how can they go about doing that? If they if they, if they want to be if they want to be part of the solution outside of hosting training, what are some things they can do to help out? Yeah, phenomenal question. So we are constantly in search of volunteers. We're almost an entirely uh, volunteer organization, and um, you can volunteer on any of our websites. So First Help, Blue Help, Red, White, or Gold Help. Uh, they've all got links to our volunteer resources. And the sort of help we're looking for is full spectrum. So if you have a talent for uh, social media, for instance, our social media team is only so big. And so uh, we've got a phenomenal marketing director, uh, Robin Michael. She's doing an outstanding job. Francis McGill is, is helping a lot with that, um, uh, the social media side. But our social media team, I mean, I could list them all, but I, I'm not going to. Uh, they're doing great, but they're they're just a, a small team. And so they could use help there. Uh, our walks, for instance, we are constantly looking for uh, volunteers and communities to, to do walks with us. And since, um, yeah, you know what? I, I don't think Dr. McGill will get too upset if I let the cat out of the bag early. Um, so yeah, we'll just keep it our little secret for now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, our, uh, our next campaign is the ambassador program. And so uh, there are 3,142 counties in our country. And I was at a conference not too long ago and uh, somebody really hurt me deeply when they said, you know what the problem is? People haven't heard of you. And um, I had to acknowledge he's right. Like, I didn't like the way he said it. I didn't like the, the tone, but at the end of the day, he was 100% spot on. There are people in this country who don't know who we are. And worse than that, they don't know who any of the others are. They just don't know. And so what, one of the ways that we could use volunteers to help is bring this to your community, right? And so we can help you do that uh, through our ambassador program we're developing right now. Man, that, that is some fantastic stuff. As we're wrapping things up here, uh, I, I just want to say a couple thank yous to you. Now, number one, I want to thank you for your service. Uh, I, I, you you are an American patriot, and, and I appreciate your service. But I... I don't want to say I appreciate it more. I appreciate it differently, the work that you're doing right now, because you don't always see the difference that you make, but you're making, you and your team are making a difference. And I cannot thank you enough for that. But I do have one more question for you, because that's the way I do things. Uh-oh. If you could, no, if you could go back somehow in a time machine and give Private Willis a book, what book would it be and why? The Four Agreements by Ruiz Miguel. And uh, for those that haven't read it, um, it is it's an interesting read. And uh, especially if you listen to the audio version of it. But here's the reality. We say some horrific things to ourselves. And we're incredibly hard on ourselves. And we let our environment affect the way we see the world. And... Uh, often limit the person we ultimately can become. And uh, if I knew at 19 or 20 or, you know, 17 even, um, the 
the things that I was experiencing and the way I looked at the world, being able to control who I was and uh, the inner voice that I have determining what I would ultimately uh, do and decisions I would make. Yeah, I would probably uh, sit there and read it to him if he wasn't willing to read it himself, which he probably wouldn't have been. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And, and Brent, I know we got to wrap things up, but uh, I just want to put out there, uh, echo what you said. We got to have this guy back because uh, there's so much more we can talk about. Incredibly insightful. And, and Joe, we thank you for sharing your your stories and your experiences. And uh, again, we just we applaud you for your efforts of uh, making a difference and, and changing a societal shift in the way we look at things truly humbled to even be here and to be a part of this but uh let me just close this out uh especially after the gratitude from both of you and i uh humbly accept it but i just want to be completely transparent about the work being done by the volunteers in our team uh the other leaders across the board whether they are executives or or directors uh and to our peers out there i mean it doesn't matter what organization you're with and i don't have time to sit here and do a list of them but guys you're phenomenal and thank you so much for what you're doing and gentlemen thank you for letting me share the message and uh mike we'll put all the information in the the show notes so folks if they if they listening they want to get more information we'll uh put all that right there so they have the resources to get the help they need and uh, again if if you have a story that you'd like to tell we want to hear from you you can send us an email with all the information at between the lines at virtualacademy.com and we uh, hope to have joe back soon and we've got more great content coming your way and we put out those brand new episodes each and every tuesday morning at between the lines with virtualacademy.com joe mike it's been a great episode and i appreciate you guys taking time to, to talk with us and uh some insightful stuff, Mike. Thank you, guys. 